I don't think Bernie's great on race, personally. I think he's, you know, whatever on race. But I don't know where this idea that he's uniquely bad on it comes from, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm glad I have you here, Adair, because you worked with, so you, you worked kind of with the campaign, you worked as a delegate, you know what was going on behind the scenes as a Bernie delegate. And this idea that Bernie is uniquely clumsy on race, I think it's rooted in some very specific instances of things that he said or did, but it's being kind of mobilized as this disqualifying element when I don't know a fucking candidate who's good on race, right? At least not good on race in the way I need them to be, right? I think a lot of people, when people say like Bernie is bad on race, they mean Bernie hasn't mastered like the the language of symbolic anti-racism. Like he hasn't mastered the mm-hmm. the the lexicon of intersectional feminism and the lexicon of critical race theory and the lexicon of say uh, queer theory. But I would argue that most people who fall into those categories haven't ma- haven't mastered that lexicon either, and so we find ourselves being weaponized against Bernie by white upper middle class people who, A, for them, that language is very meaningful, right? Because it's their way of disguising their own racism. It's their way of disguising their own unwillingness to engage in a structural analysis. But there is, like, but for me, it's like, which candidate would you say is good on race? Pop quiz, motherfuckers. Which candidate is good on race here? What, what would you say? Is it or there? Who's good on race in, in 2016, in 2020 electoral cycle? Who's the best candidate for black people? We don't have one, to be completely honest with you, at least not that I've seen. And I think what you're doing really hits on a bigger point, too, is like there's this big push, especially from people that don't like, you know, X or Y candidate to be like, OK, well, especially when you frame it from an identity uh, issue saying, hey, these people have done X, Y and Z that have really fucked up my community or my, you know, people that lie at these intersections. Right. You're like, OK, well, who's good on it then? You just have to take a look at the best that's available. And it's like, you really don't because nobody really is good on race in this election cycle. No white person is really what I would consider to be great on race in this country. I think they all can be, I think they can be as good as a white person get, but we don't even have that in this election. So, yeah, I mean, I think part of it is, you know, I would presume we're talking within the, the two parties and how those, lim- those within those choices are limited by viability. If you vote for the third party, you're, <laughs> you're basically voting for Trump. Like, have you learned? Have you learned fucking nothing in the past two years? That, that's Richard? actually the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> is the first time you've heard this? Well, <laughs> oh, let me tell you, buddy. <laughs> right. Like, no, but I mean, I think both of you guys uh, hit on some important points, and uh, and part of it, I think, what I've noticed is. Uh, and you mentioned a variety of theory and, and I've been do- doing more reading of theory and, and studying and listening to more voices than I was prior to Bernie. And the, one of the things I've noticed is just that uh, f- for whatever reasons you want to call it, but there's a there's a pervasive ignorance among the population uh, about what we're actually talking about, what the situation is, what what words we're using, what they mean and that it results in this uh the conversation being so distorted and convoluted that we're 
we're really just yelling at each other and, and the communication isn't actually transpiring. So like when you point out that there's this wave of people pointing out how bad Bernie is on race and then the response is, well, who's better? It, it's like, well, the p- point that they're making is that Bernie's bad and that's the end of the discussion for them. And, and the question of, well, who's better doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is that Bernie's bad. Like that's the end of the discussion. And then, so we've, we've also lost a lot of nuance and a lot of things because there's people on the right making bad faith arguments using the rhetoric of the left. Well, yeah, of course. That's like, that's typical Nazism. But I think that you're, you're right that you're right there. Now I'm all fucking fired up because that's, that's the point, right? It's, this is not about what other people are good at. This is about what Bernie's bad at. I had the displeasure of arguing with somebody from Wonkette, which I guess I've only ever read one thing at Wonkette, and so it's hard for me to kind of give a snapshot or I guess a f- anything but a vulgar critique of the website. But it's basically like, if you can imagine a blog run by one of the moms of a Lifetime movie, uh, like like the mom character in a Lifetime movie thriller about like a teenage daughter who gets addicted to online porn or something. It's like that, like who is like, it's like a semi-alcoholic. That's what Wonkette is run by. That's who it's for too. Um, like semi-alcoholic suburban white moms. And, you know, the whole thing revolved around like, okay, well, Bernie, like black people don't like Bernie and it's just like, okay, but this poll says that they do. Or, you know, at the very least, says people of color don't hate him. So what does it really matter? And so it becomes this, this larger conversation about what is the metric for being good on race? It's like, what exactly, what metric are we using for what makes somebody good on a race? And for me, that metric has entirely, or that conversation hasn't been entirely hijacked by neoliberalism to be one entirely about this moral economy of who knows the right language, right? And, and, and packaging, packaging matters, yeah. you know, it's like, what, what do they look like? Are they of this group? It doesn't matter what their policies or their positions are, is, are, do they, will they show up on TV as representative of that group? Well, yeah, I mean, like, is Kamala Harris good on race? No, of course the fuck not. She's a, exactly. she's a cop. She's, mm-hmm. She can't possibly be good on race. It's, it's Cory Booker on good on race. Is Cory Booker black or is he just tan? I can never, I, I'm sorry. I, I thought that's like a rude question. I can never tell. To my knowledge, Cory Booker is a, it, <clears throat> again, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again now. Cory Booker's a house nigga through and through and through. Cory Booker is Uncle Ruckus, if Uncle Ruckus was was someone that you could consider conventionally attractive. I don't not trust Cory Booker because he's light-skinned. I think that's rude and colorist. I don't trust him because he looks like the DC anime universe Lex Luthor. And I've said this before. (laughs) Right? Cory Booker Booker looks just like the DC... I'm going to use this thumbnail. That's what Cory Booker looks like. And... (laughs) I'm actually surprised. I Googled it before I said it like the first time. And like, it's not a widely held theory that he's actually Lex Luthor from an alternate universe, which is, it blows my mind. They look exactly the same. Weaker jaw, definitely. But they look exactly the same. Right. You know, I know you were joking earlier, but I also thought Ariana Grande was Latina. So I'm really not going to wager a guess on that. <laughs> is she not? No. Apparently yeah. she, she's Italian. You learn from there every day. They just found a, a side by side of Cory Booker and Lex Luthor, and Lex Luthor is like three shades darker than Cory Booker. But other than that, these two look exactly the fuck alike, and I'm shook. But, but Lex Luthor is, is white, though. Like canonically, Lex Luthor is incredibly white. Not anymore. They darkened that brother up real quick. 
it's just it's a it's a weird cycle for 2020 because there's this whole idea right we started seeing this in 2016 but now they're really kind of doubling down on it like everybody like all these fucking centrists and american liberals really just want to promote uh kamala harris like they love hey they love the fact that she's a cop they fucking like it's fucking great and you know to a lot of these white people black folks are just a fucking monolith Right. And, you know, we all we because you're black, you have to think you have to think alike. And if you disagree with Kamala Harris, then you're not really a black person. You're you know, you're a Russian agent on Twitter trying to make America look bad. And ah, we got you, Red. But the fact that you can't even act like you can't criticize people other than Bernie for legitimate things that they've done, said or, you know, their past record is is without it being reduced to. Either you're racist, not really black or woman or anything like that. And you just, it, I just don't understand why that, why this passes for political discourse in America in the year 2018, about to be 20 fucking 19. Like it just doesn't make any sense. And how these people think that's a winning strategy, I will never fucking understand. Like I will never understand why these people think it will win. Like when to to bring it back to 2016, when we walked out of the out of the stadium, all the Bernie delegates did, you know, as a gigantic group. I remember distinctly Hillary Clinton, like a Hillary Clinton voter, emphatically like jumping up and down, waving her arms, screaming faggots at us. And I was like, "What does this make you think? Like, how is this going to build a coalition? You know, how many of us here are queer? And you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna yell that word at us and think I want to vote for your person? I just I don't get it." I mean, I think your mistake is thinking it's a strategy. I think your mistake is going, oh, okay, the, the you know, the, the Democratic establishment, the sort of centrist, liberal, and donut Twitter is alienating people or saying these things as a strategy to win votes. No, this is kind of just like a, patho- a pathological thing. It's like this is about what centrists and liberals think about themselves in the components of their ideology, in the, the nature of their group, right? And so internal to them they are absolutely sure that like the democrats are the party of anti-racism and feminism and like lgbtq liberation and pro-immigration and all these things like that's they are absolutely sure about that where they gain that surety from is entirely ascriptive it's entirely divorced from any kind of i would say legitimate nuanced material analysis of the world around them Right. It's mostly just a branding thing. And that's why I said I think when people say Bernie is bad on race, I know some people and this is not to erase any black person who has like a legitimate grievance with Bernie Sanders racial politics. But I would say the majority of time I'm hearing it, I'm hearing it from white people or people of color who, you know, again, they they act as tokens in the media and like they gain their kind of legitimacy in those spaces by erasing people of color voices, co-opting the entirety of like the black population in their office and being like the person of color in their group, right? They're the black writer at this particular outlet. And so for that outlet and for their friend circle, they represent the black community and that's how they kind of negotiate power in liberal spaces. And for them for both for like the, that black pop that population of black people like the black liberal media elite like it behooves them to erase all dissenting black voice from the landscape because you can't contradict them because then it, because then like what and then what is their authority derived from if they don't know what black people actually want to think 
right? And because the media self-selects for people who are, tend to be rich and tend to be middle class, didn't can afford, like you might be black, but you know, you're middle class. So your, you know, your blackness, your sort of engagement with racism is always going to be tempered by your class privilege. When you're talking about those people, like those white people and those people of color who mainly occupy white spaces, what they tend to mean is like Bernie, like I said, Bernie has not mastered the the language of symbolic anti-racism. He does not, you know, constantly quote bell hook. He doesn't constantly use words like intersectionality. The ways in which he's bad on race, um, sort of structurally, are ways in which they support, right? Like Bernie, like they don't want reparations, right? So like pointing to the fact that Bernie's bad on reparations, that doesn't mean anything to them. Hillary doesn't want reparations either. No, like pointing to Bernie's uh, policies on Palestine or his sort of slips of the tongue on Palestine and the apartheid state that is Israel, they don't want that shit either. It's like what they really mean is that, okay, well, he's not a Democrat, so therefore he doesn't have the ability to claim, I don't want to say dominance, but I guess dominance is the right word. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't have the ability to claim that he's good on race by his inherent being a Democrat, it's like his sort of inherent as Democrat. And he also does not constantly mobilize this you know, symbolic language of anti-racism that we, you know, we have deemed to be incredibly important. And it's important to understand like that particular that particular metric was established on purpose. This idea that the most important way, sort of the most important or even like the only form of anti-racism is the symbolic language of anti-racism, it was a strategy mobilized by like centrist third-way Democrats to disguise it from the fact that they're not doing shit about racism in a structural way. Like that they can be, you know, not only do they enact policies that actively harm the black community, right? You know, the the crime bill, you know, drug laws, private prison industry, having slaves, right? <laughs> that was that was wild. <laughs> it was a wild time. Um, but they've also, you know, they've also entirely changed the way that we talk about anti-racism and what we consider to be legitimate forms of anti-racist politics, right? So if you do, you know, if you, and that's how they can say things like, okay, well, free college won't solve racism. Are you fucking stupid? It's just like free college won't solve racism. Of course it won't. But like, but, but like, what is your plan to stop racism? It's just like, I think like, what, like, what's your plan for like to end racism, if not free college? It's like, what's your plan to end racism if not Medicare for all? It's like, what's your plan? Like, what is like, what is your plan to stop racism? They don't have a plan to stop racism. They have a lot of pretty words about what racism is mm-hmm. and about like the intellectual and moral failings of racists and how they're better than that. And, you know, a lot of gooey feelings about Barack Obama, but they don't actually have any like anti-racist policies. Yeah. And I think you mentioned that, like, where does this authority come from? And it, it's from the people that whose livelihoods are dependent on basically not upsetting those people that are reflect uh, allegedly, you know, uh, you know, echoing their the black sentiment that they're getting in their office onto the the readers and, and projecting that out. As uh, we saw recently with some of the polling that was going around the about, oh, black women, you know, 
you know, Bernie's problem with black women is going to be this big issue, which was a, well, somewhat accurate was a mis misframing of the issue. And that's, that's part of the problem is that if you say something like, you know, Bernie has issues with uh, being reflective of the messages he's been receiving from black women that could be supportive of his campaign. That's an accurate critique. But what ends up happening is instead of trying to figure out, well, what, what kind of things does he need to do? Well, you know, it's just hire black women. It's like, well, not just any black women it should be black women that are also aligned with the, the kind of policy goals or that, uh, you know, see reflective and then can contribute the, the nuanced character or the, the additional uh, valuable information that their perspective provides. But what instead it's just like, well, he, he, should, he should hire neoliberal black women is what, what they're really saying. No, he, he should, he should hire, um, Issa Rae, Donna Brazil and, <laughs> and Beyonce to run his, his fucking social media accounts. Like when Hillary Clinton hired fucking Lena Dunham. Yeah. But then, and then you have somebody like Anola who's making a legitimate critique and in, in Unless you know the people that you're seeing the critique from, then you don't know where it's coming from. But then the people that are amplifying that critique may be amplifying it because of, you know, they actually believe in the substantive critique or simply because they're trying to amplify any black voice that's dissenting of Bernie. And, and it's, but yeah. it, 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 I, that's one of the things I feel weird about critiquing or defending Bernie is if I defend him, then I know a bunch of uh, white progressives are going to uh, echo what I'm saying and say, see, this black person says that. And if I attack him, a bunch of uh, black neoliberals are going to be like, oh, see, you know, the, the, you know, one another like and it, it feels kind of trapped. That's why I don't even I don't even find myself very interested in the Democratic Party or the, the presidential election, like you mentioned before uh, myself. So well, here's the thing again. about talking about uh, him being bad on race, right? And he, he definitely is. He's definitely made some mistakes. But going back to 2016, right, in the lead up to the actual convention itself, there was constant like, I mean, at least once a week, there was conference calls with the national delegation where questions were asked, surveys were sent out by the by the campaign at at least at least one or two that I remember. Right. And we would sit there and we would talk about, oh, yo, this is what I'm seeing. This is how I'm feeling. What's going on? What are we what are we looking at as to what's going to actually happen at the convention? And I think that was a good I think that's a good first step. But one of the things that I found so interesting here is that neoliberal folks love to be like, oh, black women are going to save the country. But when there's any any time issues actually affect black women and black women, you know, speak the fuck up, they suddenly just want to shut that down and they, and they feel really uncomfortable. And the hidden group within that demographic that they love to just pretend doesn't exist is black trans women. And what they don't want to admit is that, yes, a lot of Bernie's, econo a lot of Bernie's economic policies are going to solve a lot of issues for a lot of people. And that the most marginalized folks in this country are going to be the most beneficial thereof. And so what neoliberals won't ever admit out loud is that they're afraid of being replaced. It's not, in my opinion, it's not a large jump from neoliberal to neo-Nazi. Like, I don't really see that much of a difference between the two, to be quite honest with you. And I think that feeds into the hate of Bernie. I think that's part of why they don't like it. Neoliberals have more in common with neo-Nazis than they do with Bernie. And that's a really scary thing to think about at the end of the day. Well, no, I mean, I think you're, I think you're entirely right. And you're not, and you're not even entirely, you're like, that argument is not even new, right? I mean, the language of it is kind of new, I guess, you know, neoliberal have a lot to do, you know, have more common with neo-Nazis than say they have to do with democratic socialists or social Democrats. But in reality, there's always been this analysis of fascism that positions like centrist, right? So when I say centrist, I mean, specifically that 
you know, we talk about the, the 1%, right? The 99% versus the 1%. But let's say the top 8% of the world or America that has been left content by the status quo, not only financially content, but let's say socially content, like their social position, their media elites, uh, their business elites, their celebrities, their rich people. They have a lot of clout. Um, they get a lot of retweets on fucking Twitter. We want to fucking call it. I mean, those people, um, they see the value in the status quo because of course they do, right? They, of course they see the value in the status quo because the status quo has left them pretty well off, right? They might have problems, right? And that was something that uh, Eugene Perrier said to me. He was like, when you look at the people who are, you know, if you look at all these centrist rallies, like the people who will come out and march in favor of Mueller or march whenever like the fucking General Mathis quits because we're not killing more Afghanis. Uh, it's like you see a population of people who prior to 2016 never really had any real problems. Um, like if they had personal problems, like they might have had you know, depression, they might have been, you know, a uh, grief because their parents died. But when you talk about the long sort of trauma of structural inequality, that was never a part of their life, it was never a part of their life trajectory. Their problems tend to be very, very personal. And like that, what makes them very dangerous is that they view that comfort as synonymous with the social order, right? They view that comfort, they view like them being happy and them feeling, you know, socially and economically secure with society going as planned right they might acknowledge things as bad like okay cops being cops shooting black people in the street is are bad but it's not unnormal it's not like or rather if it's not normal the solutions that they're willing to entertain in order to solve that problem are actually very very um shallow right that's when it comes that's where it comes up to the hill i'm socially liberal but fiscally conservative which, which really means like i'm socially liberal but i'm not really in favor of any of the structural changes that would actually solve the problems i said i'm able to identify because those structural changes might actually implicate me and you and like and so when people say, you know, when people say like, like that makes them uniquely susceptible to fascism, that makes them uniquely susceptible to authoritarianism, that makes them uniquely susceptible to uh, anti-democratic thinking. It's because they're willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that their comfort is not threatened by populists, right? And this is where this is why horseshoe theory really kind of resonated with them and why they use the word populist to interchangeably speak to the far right and the far left. Because for them, all populism is largely the same because all populism represents a threat against their own I don't want to say supremacy, but against their, their, you know, against their comfort. Since their comfort is synonymous with the social order, that represents an existential threat to society. And that means that they are basically willing to give up anything to keep themselves comfortable, including democracy, including the rights of other people, including sort of, uh, especially those people happen to be foreign. Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, we see it reflected in the what's called the conservative culture uh, on the right, but it, it, it's you're seeing a form of it in that as you describe on the left where, you know, is this comfort with the status quo and any disruption to the status quo is radical. And like regardless, but it sounds like a dare. Well, it's, it's radical, and it's, it's also it's also a condemnation. It's also a condemnation. I said condemnation. I know my mind's at. Uh, <laughs> it's also a condemnation of their own of their own sense of self. Like it's, it's an attack on their on their sense of self. But let me talk about the, the center left and you know Democrats and liberals and how they view themselves in their relationship to you know 
economic inequality, in racial equality, in gender equality, where they feel like those things are inherent parts of their politics. And so if you offer them solutions that necessarily that don't necessarily jive with what they've been told are possible by Democrats, they get very kind of sketchy and bristly about them. One of the insidious aspects of neoliberalism is that it basically enforced or rather foisted upon us one population the particular view of the right ways to fight racism, the right ways to fight sexism, the right ways to fight um sorry to fight for LGBTQ equality. And if you don't happen to follow those ways, your you know procedure is illegitimate. Neoliberalism acted to like legitimize capitalist solutions to social inequality when Obviously, you know, you know, those on the left, with like Adair has been a communist for four years now. Richard just became a communist yesterday. Like we, <laughs> it's like we understand those. Like, like there is no capitalist solution. Correction. Mm-hmm. I've been a communist for almost a decade. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But but I, you know, so then, then you, so then you know, like, like there is no solution for those structures of inequality. Mm-hmm under capitalism because they reinforce each other and i would say even if they were there were right they would be bad right and i think that that was the that, that was the sort of the argument i got into with smooth cobra that got me banned or not banned but they got me um blocked by him you no know, r.i.p marcus h johnson you know, he was essentially arguing for the idea of colorblind capitalism i think that's what it comes down to like if you're arguing good faith and you're not just trying to be a complete, like if you believe that everyone is arguing kind of in good faith and not being just disingenuous dickbags, you're saying that you have essentially three camps. You have the race in class camp. So basically you have like the race and, you know, race being uh, heuristic or basically an analog for basically every gender, sexuality, uh, everything like that, ethnicity, religion. The race in class, you fight both at the same time. You like you construct structural solutions to gender, race, et cetera, inequality. Um, and then you have the people who I would argue represent the sort of liberal faction of that debate where it's like, no, 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 no. Actually, we put race first. We tackle these sort of these symbolic issues of misrepresentational oppression. So there's not enough black people on TV. Black people, there are not enough black millionaires. There's not enough black presidents. There's not enough um, black Broadway stars. There's not enough people of color in this particular high prestige field. And then you have the people, I would argue, like Adair was mentioning earlier, who are the, the extreme class reductionists, where their position is, okay, don't even worry about race. Don't even worry about gender. Just worry about sort of broad brush solutions to structural inequality. So Medicare for all, universal basic income, uh, better public housing, better um, better public education, all those things. And of course, we haven't even talked about the fucking environment because that's going to be a big issue in 2020, I, I hope. But oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, this be big. But for me, it's always been like I'm a race and class person. I think we're all is anyone here not a race or class person. Is anyone here like on falling on one side of the issue? Yeah, they, they both. You can't solve any one of them. Any, any solution to either of them has to be cognizant and address both. Thank you, like, thank you, Richard. Uh, uh, Dare you have to address the intersectionalities of a person's identities and how that intersects with how they live under capitalism. You can't address one and not address the others. Otherwise, you're just sugarcoating more bullshit. Thank you, Professor. But I, I acknowledge that, and this is so. This is going to be my hot take of the episode of this rather some kind of dour episode. It's like. But if you were forced to choose one, I think you go with class first. 
and that was my argument to uh to smooth cobra because like, i think as adair mentioned earlier it's like the criticisms of bernie are largely disingenuous and they're coming from especially when they're coming from people who are liberal or centrist or democrat right they're they're sort of pointing out his flaws while not necessarily acknowledging their own like like the, their own shortcomings and so i think it's easy for us to say okay well and so on some issues bernie trends towards being a little class reductionist and we would like to see better from him right everyone agrees to that but you know from their position they're coming from like a colorblind capitalist position and i was like you know frankly I like I feel as though they don't ever really argue. Like I don't want to say class reduction people don't exist because they're obviously class reductionist people who exist. They they argue all the time online with Brittany like a hundred hours a day. Um, but it's easier to articulate a version of the future, assuming that we say these are theoretical midpoints to. A uh, totally egalitarian society where race and gender and class and all those sexual oppressions of issues don't matter anymore. It's easier to make for me to make an argument for why we would want to go to like a racist socialist society than than like a colorblind capitalist society. And only because I feel like dealing with the underlying issue of capitalism would deal with a lot of the sort of the extreme manifestations of it. Right, like so, the private prison industry, the for-profit health industry, police preying on communities of color. A lot of these issues would, you know, go away as opposed to be equally represented based in race. If that makes any sense. I mean, uh, for me, I think I want to point uh, out that this is not that we don't. This is not a conversation that yeah. it's having because, like, most yeah. of the time, like <laughs> it's just like if you're going to have the conversation, I've yet to hear a compelling argument for why I would prefer to have more black billionaires over like universal health care because, like, that's what's being positioned as like two the two options. Like, okay, well, either we can have more black CEOs at Exxon Mobil. Or we can have free college for everyone, including middle class and upper middle class white people. And I'm just like, a free college, of course. It's like, right. that's like that's not a that's not a real question. I think part of it is uh, there's, uh, I guess, a fear a little bit of you know that what you end up with is free college for white people. But like, I think that in today's society, it would be tough to be able to make that happen without like, I mean, you're going to bring up some, some black folks and you're not going to like, you're not likely going to immediately end up in some of the worst possible scenarios of a racist socialist society. I think Uh, it's a lot easier to, uh, envision the bad parts of a colorblind capitalist society because we're so deeply entrenched already in a capitalist society that, you know, the idea of it being colorblind is a little bit easier to envision. And so, uh, but just imagine. And then if you're moderately, if you have a voice in, in the system and in, in, as it exists, then you're moderately successful. And so the system is moderately working for you. So that is essentially, it's just a very selfish argument. And they're realizing that they're basically making a very similar argument than that they've long opposed from Republicans. But, uh, and I, I think you're seeing some cognitive uh, dissonance resulting in, in some of their public personas and that's why you see focus outside of their internal thinking on well wait a minute am i not just making a republican argument for black people is that i'm basically a black republican now right that that's where i'm that's where i'm falling economically and i would that 
that realization, I think, uh, depending on uh, for people that are making it in the society, that makes sense for people that aren't making it in the society. I think it's causing a lot more dissonance. I think one of the things that a lot of these, one of the things that I feel like, especially those extreme class reductionists fear, but don't recognize that they fear is that if they got, if we started to do things like make college free, an educated populace of people of color, of queer folks, of disabled folks, of all of those intersections is going to lead to to more systemic changes where people are going to fight white slavery. Right? I mean, we're all thinking like, it's just like, uh, like uh, a, a, highly, a highly educated populace of black people and people and, and native and natives is the, the next logical step is white slavery. I don't care what anyone says. Like, I mean reparations. Reparations. We know we enslave them, then we breed them out of the gene pool. <laughs> but that's the thing about it is they don't. Is they're, they're afraid of that kind of thing, right? So I feel like that's part of why they, yep. they should be. You think slavery? You think slavery was bad? You think slavery was bad in in seventeen uh, seventy six? You should see it. <laughs> 2020. You're going know, you, you know, oh. to be picking cotton and ain't going to even need to be even using it for shit. That's the thing about it is once you start educating, you know, and that's because that's one of the keys of capitalism is to keep the classes that you want, the, the groups of folks and classes that you want to oppress remove access to things like education and healthcare and, and whatever that, you know, in significant ways. Once you start educating oppressed people and you give those folks the tools to come to work with, because right now, right, we don't really have much of a choice. As much as I would like to see society overthrown and just fuck all the institutions, burn it all down and start over again, it's not realistic. But these extreme class reductionists are terrified of getting what they want. They're afraid of getting things like universal education because once people have the language to articulate these points online or articulate these points when they're running for office, as opposed to just having barbershop conversations, you know, about men and white folks had to come and did this, that, the other thing, we'd have been doing all this other, all this other shit, right? Once you give people that knowledge, it's hard to stop them from organizing better, organizing more effectively. That's not to say that's not done now, but it can be done differently it brings more ideas to the table it breeds more and these are especially extreme class reductionists are afraid of they for whatever reason they think uh communism equals con- uh, competition which is not the case but in, in, under a capitalist society it would absolutely breed a lot more competition and these mediocre milk toast ass white people who got what they got ver- simply by virtue of being white and having access to things that were denying oppressed peoples and classes they're fucking terrified. They think that everything is suddenly going to be shipped, stripped from them and they don't want to become the minority. So I just think it's interesting to watch them flounder about and scream about, you just have to ignore race. It's only class because if they can get you to focus on class and ignore the oppression that they participated, then maybe, just maybe at the end of the day, they think they can get away with it. They think that there will be a demand for reparations. They don't think that white people will be held accountable for, you know, the hundreds of years of colonization and slavery and genocide. 
quickly on that, I, I want to just touch on that quickly with the like, I think that uh, there's an important part of that with the Green New Deal and what that means for Africa. And uh, the other part I just wanted to mention, or I'll just leave that part. I just want to touch on that because we're going to we're going to talk about that at some point and, and later on at some point. Oh, but. yeah, probably. I was just I wasn't going to add anything, anything special. I was going to say my being a minority is great, though. So you get to use slurs, which I know like, I'm like, <laughs> chopping at the bit. <laughs> Who doesn't want to use slurs? Everyone loves using slurs. I mean, that is a popular that is a popular complaint of being oppressed for uh, white folks is not being able to use certain slurs. And white people think they're so great if they don't call you a nigga. But I'm like, I know you thought it. Like I can see the look on your face. I know you thought it. You know, like at this point, you may as well just say like I prefer an open racist to a closeted one. I prefer someone just to call yeah. me a nigga than to call the police and be like, I'm scared. There's a large black man walking. Like, I don't want to deal with that, you know? You have, yeah. you have the, you're a nigger look in your eye. So, that, 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 like, that, like that little gleam that happens in anime. It's like, but every person of color has a You know, you know the look. You've gotten the look at least, at least three times a day you got that look and you know it. I mean, if we're, yep, I, and it, I, you can do it in a tone too. I mean, there's, you know, like the, whether some people, some people have to be called African, have to use African American because they can't use the word black because when they say it, they say, well, you know, he was right. black. <laughs> like, and make it, and, make it two syllables. Like, <laughs> 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 so you got, they got to use African American just because it's harder to fuck up. I think the issue with Dare makes is interesting, right? So, like, I don't spend too much time worrying about class productionists on on Twitter because I, I don't like it's like four people and they're all like anno- they all look exactly the fucking same. It's like they all have like that white person haircut and they all have like master's degrees in complet and they spend a lot of time talking about like the working class and like the history of unions and uh, despite having most likely never been in a union. And, yeah, uh, but, but like I think that the, I think that there's overlap though. I think that there's meaningful overlap between them, and also I would say the kind of like the liberals who we were talking about, and that they have a very very real uh, preoccupation with language. They they have a very very real preoccupation with like language in theory. The theories might be different. The language might be, the language might be different, and, but they believe that the answer to like all of these problems lies in some sort of symbolic ability to just string the white right words together. <laughs> string the white words together. Yeah. <laughs> no, string the right words together. Like the solution to, and this goes even, I would say this is a trend. Not, it's hard to say it transcends race. Cause this, this is a problem that like overeducated Negroes have too. like your, your bougie blacks have too. you know, um, but it's like, I would argue that the majority of, you know, black people the majority of black people are pretty fucking poor uh the majority of are pretty fucking poor right and so like their problems are better represented in the language of like material solutions in the material solutions to material problems right uh that's not to say that black people don't read i don't say black people don't read theory that's just to say that for the most part you know you're gonna have better you're gonna have better luck speaking to black people like you would speak to any poor person you know with some nuances around like acknowledging that race and class are intersecting but i think where liberals lose black people a lot of times 
is, and I will say they, they, they lose, they don't think they lose black people, but they do because they find themselves only engaging in like the language of talking to like the symbolic problems black people have. Are like, oh, like, yeah, you know, I, I, I also watch Insecure just like you do, Shaniqua. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I can't afford HBO. <laughs> but um and you know you like you're left leaning people along with being kind of like socially awkward they lose black people on the like the like the refusal to acknowledge that race plays a unique part in how they engage with poverty right and how they and you know how like it's a, they play the unique role and how they like how they navigate the environment of poverty the environment of material deprivation and also like the language of material deprivation is different for black people right like being like being poor in many ways is this like the lack of material uh, resources are the same the lack of equality in some ways is the same but like the language that we use to navigate it is kind of different like the solutions that we've used to navigate it are subtly different because of race and by not acknowledging both of those things like okay yeah black people are in many ways Poor black people are in many ways exactly the same as poor white people, um, but which is going to be a contradict myself. But in other ways, the way they interpret that poverty and the way that poverty has been interpreted by the state is much different. And so you have to be able to sort of balance both of those things in your head at one time. Like, yeah, like if you're going to talk to a black person who's poor, you're going to be really speaking to them about the exact same thing you're talking to like white person about poor. Like, oh, lack of jobs, um, lack of housing. Uh, lack of good schools for their kids, but you're going to be talking to them with a, in a language that's a bit different because it has to be sort of rooted in this other language of you know racial oppression. Yeah, that re- recognizes how those things are reflected differently in in those uh, racial contexts. Go ahead, Adair. No, sorry about that. That makes it more difficult for them to be right because then they run into people that are mixed. And I swear to God, if you want to blow, if you want to blow their mind, tell them that you're not just one thing. Right. So when I tell people that I'm Afro-Latinx and Asian, like they can't, they can't comprehend. They see me and they're like, you're black. It's pronounced Latin. And they, Latinx. Latinx. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Hell no. Nah. Pronounced <laughs> Now I'm always going to read it like that. You, you just... <laughs> Latinx sounds like a, like a, like a, like a, a mid tier R and B star from like 1995. who had like a guest role in the Wayans Brothers show. It's like, man, like, like the, episode, the episode before the one with Keith Sweat when they're in the Tyler. Uh, <laughs> oh. We're transitioning fully into an all a, a black aimed show now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you manage to listen to all that, you know, if you if you if you got past white slavery, then you're probably ready to hear about the Wayne. <laughs> if, if you got first, let me just say, if you got past white slavery, then you're either black or we didn't do our job. <laughs> but no, like it's it just is interesting to see, right? That like. Their, their understanding of race is so simplistic that the moment that any sort of nuance is thrown in there, they lose their mind. People, like, people, especially in America, like to look at you and say, okay, you look like this, so I'm going to put you in this box. But the moment you're like, so my issues as a black person are tied into my issues as a Latinx person, are tied into my issues as an Asian person, are tied into, you know, 
it was telling like whether or not you're cis or you know fall under the trans umbrella whether or not like all of these different things kind of really wrap up into that and they refuse to they, they just I, I think a they refuse to even try to learn about that kind of thing they refuse to look at intersectionalities because it requires them to do actual work right it requires them to be like okay, people experience the world differently than I do in substantially different ways. Like it's not just like the Latinx folks were not just a monolith. Black folks are not just a monolith. Asian folks are not just a monolith. And there's people that, you know, fall into all three of those different groups in different ways and in different varieties. So they don't, they don't, they don't want to deal with that. And frankly, they can't, like they don't, I don't think they have the capacity to really sit down and be like, wow, these people exist and comic books is a great example of that people are freaking the fuck out over miles morales the new spider-man because they're like he's he's black or he's latinx and they're like the reality is he's both but people even people of color have a hard time recognizing that intersectionality there because we're so trained to be like you're one thing or the other and you can't be both but miles morales has been around for at least 10 years now he did not premiere 10 years ago. He, Miles Morales premiered in Ultimate Spider-Man uh, as part, part of the Ultimate imprint. I want to say after the death of Peter Parker, which happened after Ultimatum. Seven years. In 2011. Then, so, yeah, okay. So like it's almost been a decade. But I mean, he was just recently incorporated into like the main, not recently, about maybe three years ago, it was incorporated into like the main Marvel universe. It's totally off the fucking topic. But no, I, I mean, I get what you're saying. But it's a good, it's a good, it, it's a good interaction though to like even point out it's, that in popular culture, people have a hard time wrapping their head around someone existing as two separate identities at the same time. I mean, people have a hard time recognizing that the failures they identify and people who don't belong to the same group as they do are not necessarily because of affiliation or membership to that group that they're identifying as the person that's being part of, but actually just like a personal failure that can be either the result of structural issues, like, like structural indoctrination, like in you know socialization, or just like person, like people have per- fucking personal neurotic issues. And this is not to say anything about like Mal Morales or anything, but more like, so a lot of the problems that people identify with liberals are not because they're liberals per se, they're because they were socialized into our society. And so when you believe that you, you're not subject to those problems because you're not a liberal, because you're, let's say like, oh, I'm on the left. You know, I'm a Democrat or I'm a, I can't be racist. I'm a Democrat. I think we all we all know the problem with that line of thinking. But there is also like the I can't be racist because I am a socialist or, you know, I'm a communist mm-hmm. or I can't be sexist because I'm black. It's like, you know, people are complicated and they're very and we have a very shame adverse society. And a lot of people, especially if you're a good person, which most people think of themselves as good, smart people they don't necessarily like to think of themselves as having bigoted ideations. Like they don't like thinking of themselves like, okay, well, I did or said something sexist because that means that they must be a sexist and therefore that must make them a bad or good fucking person or bad person or dumb person versus like being socialized within a a sexist or racist society. And so like they look for ways to escape from that shame. And mostly those take the form of like shallow performative things 
like you know again the language of symbolic anti-racism even if not even if that's not reflected in your kind of prescription for structural change you can sort of hey say hey you know what i don't say the n-word so i'm not a fucking racist or i voted for the democrats so like i'm a democrat so i can't be racist or i'm a socialist so i can't be racist. Like all these really these these sort of shallow ways to inoculate yourself from the feeling of shame exist out there and that's, that's a human thing you know it's a human thing that's also the result of like a, a society where shame is not necessary we're not taught how to sit with shame it's also part of a society where the the language of racism and sexism and fascism have become rooted in interpersonal like more moral and intellectual narratives as opposed to structural ones i was just gonna say that like what gets me is then they will pay people to uh, you know help assuage of those groups to help assuage them and, and they capitalize on the fact that they that they're those groups those people in those groups are generally like the people of those groups are oppressed and so of course an opportunity to leave that oppression sounds great uh, even if it comes at the cost of what they realize at some point later in their careers is perpetuating that oppression on the people that they left behind and and so they and then they find personal ways that they can assuage that guilt by you know uh you know giving back to their communities or their families or whatever and it becomes this uh cyclical thing where they need to oppress their people in order to provide less oppression for this group of people that they publicly make seem like they're fighting oppression through being a professional black friend is a great grift 100 percent. right it's like like being <laughs> like being a professional black friend like being like the the one black staff writer at like vox or being like the one black staff writer at like vice uh it's like that's a great grift like that like that's like but to maintain that grift you kind of have to erase the existence of other black voices and you can be very sort of explicit and very calculating how you do that like, you know you can understand that's what you're doing or you can just kind of be I would, you know, you can just be socialized, socialized to believe that you actually are a good avatar or good avatar for blackness. You're a good, you're a good, um, a good spokesperson for the black experience. Even if you recognize that black people are not a monolith, you might think that your particular version of blackness is the right way, right? It's, it's like you might think your particular version of feminism is the right way or your particular version of you know, queerness or LGBT or, or being a lesbian is the right way to be those things. And so it becomes a lot easier to go, okay, well, yeah. The only way to be black is to enslave all the white honkies and there is no argument to any of that to be made. <laughs> white honkies kind of redundant, but yeah. No, no, no. You got to make sure you're clear because white people don't, rec- like they don't recognize the fact that they're honkies yet. But you round up all these crowds. <sighs> You enslave each and every one of them, and that, folks, is how you become black. Like that is, like that. That's that's the limit test. Just speaking of of white slavery, I want to speak. I want to talk about you know briefly because I'm going to have like eighty hours of this to edit. I want to talk briefly about. I assume you guys. I assume everyone here knows what's happening with Tucker Carlson, right? Who? Oh yeah, the the neo fascist propagandist on Fox News. Negro, I don't know shit about anybody on Fox News. I ain't gonna lie to you. Okay, I was just gonna say like which one, but, but okay. Um, so Tucker Carlson is, I would oh, say, oh that one, that one. No, I have heard about him on Twitter. I, I misheard you. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Well, I, what I was gonna say is, that I would say Tucker Carlson is perhaps the, you know, preeminent neo-fascist propagandist on 
in America right now, 100%. Uh, and I mean, he's not the sort of most virulent one, but he's definitely the one whose message reaches the most people by nature of like the size of his platform. And for the past, what, week or so, there has been this campaign, you know, largely led by people online. I think Jordan Ull, Ull uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Jordan Ull is one of the people who are like, you know, really pressuring the corporate sponsors of the Tucker Carlson show to basically drop them, like drop their sponsorship of the show because that's how they, you know, essentially that's how the show makes its money and that's how Tucker Carlson, you know, essentially stays on the air. And it's been relatively successful. I think as of recording today, um, the show, from what I've heard, like a, a good number of the commercial slots were just public service announcements. You know, like, because like he's you know IHOP is gone because you know <laughs> uh, immigrants love pancakes shit and, and has has he reached out to Cracker Barrel? Cracker Barrel is actually pretty racist. I mean Hobby Lobby, Cracker Barrel, um, what, what do old people like? Catheters, <laughs> uh, catheters, um, those life those yep. life alert bracelets, um, aspirin cream. Listen, I lay in the fetal position, protecting myself from a blow to the body. 
Honestly, I'm feeling fragile though We cracked my clavicle, shattered some bones I broke a couple ribs and said it's customary To cut the victim, then watch him leak his stamina With something else, he sliced and he slashed Causing contusions, bruises and gashes, I'm gasping for air I tried to find the world to fight, but he had taken it from me I must have blacked out, then woke up Got attacked by a vulture, his language was vulgar I vaguely recall that I called 911 No one answered or called back I can't see, I can't think, there's blood in my eyelids My mind moving frantic, this man did some damage My plan did not pan out, I pray that I don't see him Jihad's insurgents for Islam, he's too calm and so cold The force was strong inside of this one, I never seen nothing like it Enlightened by lack of resources, he had no fucking patience Just pacing back and forth, my lifeless corpse in the balance Adrenaline running through me, I'm stuck and I'm feeling paralyzed Apparently we met before we tried to explain There's a decline within the music that it drove him insane He couldn't take it anymore, reflecting all of his pain Inflicting the simple suffocation for ignorant publications That praise and promote the popular, even when it's a detriment That's affecting the innocence, innocence to a simpleton Little do people know what they choose for entertainment is actually more subliminal than they had imagined You couldn't fathom what the fuck would be a fed on the daily But quick sidetrack, they're trying to take the labels for ingredients Off of the food we eat so that we can no longer see it genius. take the power of knowledge away from people Then put them in a position where they're completely dependent On every word that you say and they treat it like it's an artifact Jumping jaws of fat is intelligence and attention Too much to ask of the people, I'm pleading that you believe in me Easily I defeat the seat, the scene was set for you to see It wasn't filled with money, women and diamonds for jewelry I swear that I Intended to soothe them with something logical Put it up in your mind so you know it wasn't impossible To dominate my mind like a murder by time to conquer a lie